0: Has the heaviness of old-fashioned church got you down? Well, I'd like to announce today that we are the new and improved life church of Wisconsin. Studies have shown that we have 24% fewer commitments than other churches. We guarantee to trim off the guilt because we're low-cal, low-calvin, that is. We are home of the 7.5% tithe, with a Malachi 3 promise that any money invested will bring returns out of this world. For your convenience, we offer online tithing, uh, in-foyer giving kiosks, as well as in-sanctuary food services directly to your smartphone. Uh, We have a 30-minute guarantee for worship services with 10-minute sermons or your next service is free. (laughs) And only one service a month, repeated six times in streaming video 24-7. We have only seven commandments. You can choose which ones apply to you and those around you. Uh, we take the offering every other week. PayPal and all major credit cards are accepted, of course, or you can use our easy payment plan. Yes, the new and improved Light Church of Wisconsin could be just what you're looking for. We are everything you want in a church, and less. Now, before you all go running for the exits, or, or maybe go call all your friends to come and join us, I don't know, um, let me assure you that that was just a joke. Um Except, of course, it's not really a joke, because that's the way that a lot of people tend to view Christianity, as kind of an a la carte menu from which we can pick and choose what we'd like to do and how we would like to do it. But you know, as we read the Bible, we find something very different. God has given us instructions about what exactly we are to do and how exactly we are to do it. And these instructions are given both to us as individuals and to the church as a whole. Now, we've been working our way through the book of Acts and following the Apostle Paul now on his third missionary journey. Last week, we saw how Paul was comforted when he heard about the response of the Corinthians to his letter. He confronted them with their sin and urged them to repent and to obey. All of this happened while Paul was in Macedonia. He had traveled there from Ephesus by way of Troas, and Paul um, responded to what he heard, the news that he heard from Corinth, by going to Corinth and spending three months there. And so Acts chapter 20 and verse 1, we see this, Luke describing some of these travels, says, after the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, this is, by the way, the city of Ephesus, embraced them and departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over, That region and encouraged them with many words. He came to Greece. Greece is where Corinth was located, and then Luke says he stayed three months. And we'll read the rest of that stuff later, and get on to the rest of that verses another time. Um, But while Paul was in Corinth for those three months, he wrote a letter to the church at Rome. This letter to the Romans was his longest letter, and it was probably the closest thing to a book that Paul ever wrote. The letter to the Romans is a theological treasure trove. It's filled with Paul's most thorough explanation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And it describes his plans for the future. And I'd like to take a look at just one passage in the book of Romans, like we did last week. I didn't study the entire book of 1 Corinthians with you last week. We just looked at one small excerpt as it related to Paul's time in Macedonia. Well, now I'd like to look at one passage from the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 15, that talks about and gives us some insight into Paul's time there in the city of Corinth in Greece, where Luke Luke says Paul stayed for three months. And I'd like to just begin with a couple of verses to kind of set the background here for you, give you an idea of what Paul is talking about, what has been going on in Paul's ministry. Remember, he was in Ephesus for three years. Then he left Ephesus. He went into Macedonia uh, and would estimate he was probably in that area, that general region, about a year and a half before he went down to Corinth. And now for three months, he's in the city of Corinth. And this is what Paul says about his time and his desire. He's in the city of Corinth. He's writing to the church in Rome. I know it's hard to keep all this straight. I was going to put a map up there and show it to you all on a map. Does it help? And I just, it was just the one thing I didn't get done this week. And I'm sorry about that. I will try next time to have a map for you to see it. Okay? if You, you might even look in your Bible. If it has a map, you can kind of get an idea of where he's at. But anyways, so Paul is there in Corinth. He's writing to the church in Rome. And this is what he says to the Christians in Rome. uh, Romans 15 and verse 22. For this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you. But now, no longer having a place in these parts, and having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way way there by you if first I may enjoy your company for a while. It was always Paul's desire to preach in new places. Places where the gospel had never been preached, where people didn't know anything about Jesus Christ. He wanted to go and he wanted to tell people about who Jesus was and what Jesus had done. And Paul was never interested in just following somebody else and doing what somebody else has done. He always wanted to go someplace new. And, and so it's interesting here that Paul says that he wants to go to Spain. Back in verse 19, here in, in Romans 15, Paul already explains to them that he had preached the gospel fully from Jerusalem to Illyricum. Now Illyricum is... Further north, even than Macedonia. All right, it's probably where Paul went in that time. He was in Macedonia before he came to Corinth, and this is quite a span of, of, of space. A, a large portion of the Roman Empire Paul had covered, from Jerusalem into Syria, into Asia, which you know into, through Galatia into Asia, which is you know modern-day Turkey, and then moving westward from there. A crossing over into Macedonia into Greece he's covered all of these different areas and really there's only one place left for Paul to go and that's to go west to Rome and beyond what was west and beyond of Rome Well, of course if you're geographically minded and you think of what Europe looks like you can think of what's to the west of Rome well you France and Spain England eventually if you keep going I suppose if you just keep going you get here I don't think he came to Wisconsin, though. I'm pretty sure he stopped before he got that far. But his goal was to go to Spain, right? And that's what he says here. He wanted to go west. Spain, really, for all intents and purposes, was the end of the earth. I mean, it was the extent of the Roman reach to the west. And Paul wanted to go as far as he could. So he wanted to go with the gospel, and that's what he writes to the Romans. Hey, he says, I want to come and visit you. He says, I've longed for years. I've wanted to come to Rome. I've wanted to visit you in Rome for years and years, and I've never been able to. But he tells them, I've got a plan. My plan is to go to Spain, to preach the gospel in Spain. No one there has heard about Jesus. I want to go and tell them who Jesus is. I want to go and tell them that Jesus is the Son of God. I want to tell them that he came and he lived on this earth perfect, without ever committing sin. I want to tell him that he died on a cross, brutally killed, to take the penalty of our sin, and then that he rose again. That's what Paul says, I want to go and I want to preach the gospel. And so he was committed to that, and he says, as I go, I want to stop in Rome. I want you to encourage me. I want to spend some time with you. And then I want to you can help me on my way to go on to Spain. And so that's Paul's plan, if you will. This is, you know, Paul's idea. And of course, the interesting thing is, you read the book of Acts, we realize Paul did eventually get to Rome. Not probably in the way he intended, but he got to Rome. We'll get to that eventually. We don't know if he ever made it to Spain. We just don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. And after Acts 28, we don't have any record of what what went on. Where did Paul go? We don't know what happened. So maybe he got there, maybe he didn't. We won't know in this life. But Paul was committed to preaching the gospel. I think that's really important for us to see here. Paul was, he was committed to preaching the gospel. He always was trying to find new places to go to preach the gospel, to spread the, the, the word of God. And he wasn't just committed to doing that himself. Okay, He was committed to teaching The churches, he was committed to teaching the churches that he preached in that they should do the same thing he did. He was committed to teaching others to be like him so that they would understand that being a Christian meant living a life of sacrifice to God. Being a Christian meant that whatever he did was always for the glory of God. He always was trying to follow the direction and the will of God. He was always trying to further the work of God. And he understood that that wasn't just his calling as the apostle Paul. It was every believer. And so Paul taught the churches that they should do the same because notice what he says here in Romans 15. He continues on. I want to go to Spain, he says. I'm going to come and visit you and you're going to help me on my way to get there. I want to preach the gospel And then he says this, verse 25. He says, now though, I'm going to Jerusalem. By the way, that's the opposite direction of where he wanted to go from what he's saying. But he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed. And they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. You see, Paul, he lived his life by practicing what he preached. Paul lived a life that was completely committed to sacrifice for the Lord. So that when Paul then preached to others about what they ought to do and how they ought to sacrifice of themselves for the Lord, he wasn't putting a burden on them that he was not himself bearing. He wasn't being a hypocrite and saying, do as I say, now as I do. I just need you to see that this morning. You've got to understand that from the very get-go here. Paul was in Corinth... He was preparing to leave for Jerusalem to deliver a financial gift from the churches of Asia, Macedonia, and Achaia. These three regions that he's been in for the last several years. I think four and a half years Paul's been there. And over that time, these churches have collected together a financial gift. And they're sending it with Paul back to Jerusalem to the poor saints there who had suffered under persecution. What's interesting here is how Paul describes this gift and the significance of this gift for the people who gave it. And so I want to just take a look at that this morning. That's what I want to focus our attention on. Paul here, speaking of this gift that he has taken, that he's delivered. And what is significant about that gift and what it means to those who gave it. I think the overarching theme of these verses is that giving is an indication of our spiritual condition. As believers, how we give is an indication of our spiritual condition. And this kind of central theme here is supported by three points, three separate points that Paul makes concerning the purpose of giving. And I'll tell them to you right at the front, and then we'll go through, and we'll look at the passage. The first one is this, giving is a joyous response to the gospel. Giving is a joyous response to the gospel. The second one is this, giving is a recognition of our spiritual debt. Giving is a recognition of our spiritual debt. And the thirdly, giving is an expression of worship to the Lord. Giving is an expression of worship to the Lord. So, Those three are what we're going to focus on. I think that's what Paul is is offering us uh, explanation of here. These are three principles that Paul sets forth here in Romans 15. He also explains some of these things in 2 Corinthians. So we're going to go to 2 Corinthians a couple of passages to help to see how he's explaining this. So you're probably going to want to keep a finger here. I'm sorry, I don't like to do this very often, but we're going to go back and forth a little bit and look at a couple of other passages. Because Paul... Paul mentions here, by the way, again, he says here in verse 26, that it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia. Okay? And so we have to think about this. What are the churches that are in Macedonia? The churches of Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. And then what are the churches in Achaia? Well, primarily Corinth. Athens was there as well, but we don't really have an indication that Paul was able to start a church in Athens. We don't know. No real record of that, but we do have some time there. And then the, the church in Asia, he's not mentioned here in this passage, but the church in Asia was also involved. That would be Ephesus and some of the surrounding areas there. So all of those churches. And Paul speaks of this gift in the letters to the Corinthians here in Romans. Uh, he talks about it, I believe, with the Philippians and Thessalonians as well. But we're going to look at those two passages. The first thing I want just, just to just focus our attention on this morning is the first of those points. Giving is a joyous response to the gospel. All right. For believers, for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior because of his sacrifice for us, giving is a joyous response to that good news of Jesus Christ. Notice here what Paul says um, there in verses 26 and 27. Twice in these verses he says that it pleased the Gentiles in Macedonia and Achaia to give. Notice again, uh, verse 26, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed. Twice he says this. It pleased them. This is uh, important because this helps us to see what this was. This was a voluntary act of generosity by the churches right? They didn't do this because Paul had said they had to and nobody was twisting their arm and guilting them into giving. They wanted to do it. They actually enjoyed giving. They were expressing love for the brothers and sisters in Christ, who were in need. Of course, what I find interesting about this is that it's pretty unlikely that the Christians in Corinth and Philippi and Thessalonica and Ephesus had really any contact with the Christians in Jerusalem. I mean, other than maybe a handful of people. But for the most part, these were people they had never met. These were people they didn't know. In another church, hundreds of miles away, across the Mediterranean Sea. And yet they loved them. And they express their love by giving a financial gift. I think this is a very important point for us to understand right at the beginning here as we look at this. That giving is always a voluntary action. We don't extort money from anyone. We don't. We don't send Albert and make him... I, I always remember this story. I to remember. I can't remember what book it was from. I read, it was a book I had to read when I was in school. Okay. And I just remember in this story, there was a church service, and they passed the offering plates in the church service, and while the church service was going on, they counted the offering. And they were taking up the collection for somebody in the church whose house had burned out or something, I forget the details. But they, they took the collection up, they counted the offering, and the pastor said, well, how much was it? And they told him, how much was it? He said, well, that's not enough. Pass them again. <laughs> And he says, we're not leaving here until we get enough to pay for this. So you, so they kept asking, you know, and I I forget what book it was in. I just remember thinking how strange that was. Because we don't, we don't compel anyone to give. We don't twist your arm. We're not going to, we're not going to extort money from you. The apostles didn't do that. No one in the New Testament did it. None of the churches did that. We don't have an example. of it, So we don't do that as a church. We don't force anyone to give. We'll twist your arm and make you give. I mean, to be honest, we don't even pay attention to what you give or whether you give, unless you choose to record it that way. I mean, you're free to give or not give as you please, and no one here is gonna, you know, sit over you. We don't, we don't ask the ushers afterwards. Well, you tell me who gave and who didn't give. I don't do any of that stuff, Okay? It's voluntary. Giving for the Christian is a voluntary action. It's interesting. Peter emphasized this voluntary aspect. Back in Acts chapter 5, you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira, right? how they sold some land and they gave the money to the church, and they said that they gave all of the money from the sale, but in actuality they kept back some of the money, and they lied and said they gave all of it. Well, in Acts 5 and verse 4, Peter says this to Ananias. He says, while it remained, was it not your own? In other words, when you owned the property, it was yours. You could do whatever you wanted with it. And then it says this, after it was sold, was it not in your own control? In other words, Peter says, Ananias, you didn't have to give this. You could have kept it all for yourself, and that would have been okay. No one forced you to give it. So even in that time when judgment came, right, on Ananias and Sapphira, Peter emphasized that it was voluntary. You didn't have to give this. You had it in your control to do what you pleased with it. No one made the believers give anything. They gave because they wanted to give. And Paul says it twice. It pleased them to give. But Paul explains even more about their attitude toward giving in the book of 2 Corinthians, chapters 8 and 9. So keep your hand here in Romans 15. I want to turn over to 2 Corinthians to see a little bit more about the attitude that the Christians had in these churches toward giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and verses 1 through 5. And Paul says this, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Remember, that's Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. He says, for I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord, and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. I'm going beyond where I was going to go. Okay, first time. The point here what does he say? The churches in Macedonia gave very sacrificially. In fact, they didn't just give a token out of their abundance. It wasn't just, well, hey, you know, we got enough and we got a little extra left over, so let's take a little bit of that extra left over and let's send it on. That's not what he's saying. Notice how he describes them here. He says that in great trial of affliction, verse 2, and the abundance of joy and their deep poverty. These weren't wealthy people. These weren't people who had gobs of money and didn't know what to do with it. Well, I guess we've got extra. You know, I can't spend all of it. I might as well send some of it on to the church. That's not what it's about. That's not what their attitude was. These were not rich people giving what was left over. It was those who were in deep poverty who gave above and beyond what anyone could be expected to give. In fact, Paul says, they had to urge me to take it. They urged me to take it. Paul realized these were not people who had a lot of money to give. They were not people who had abundance of wealth, and they were just, you know, could sit there easily and comfortable and have everything they needed and then just give a a generous gift. No, that wasn't what it was like at all. These were people who gave very sacrificially. It cost them. It was difficult to give. But they gave. And then you can turn to the next chapter in 2 Corinthians 9. Because Paul says something else here about their giving. And here now he's talking about the relationship between the church in Corinth and Macedonia. He says this, Now concerning the ministering to the saints, that's the financial gift he's talking about, it is superfluous or unnecessary for me to write to you. For I know your willingness, about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Now what is Paul talking about here? He's saying, listen, um, I know that you want to give. In fact, I've been bragging about your desire to give to the other churches. And because you are so determined and and you are so excited to give, it's made them excited to give. In other words, the people here that Paul is working with, the, the, the people in the churches here in Corinth and Philippi and Thessalonica, all of these churches. Paul's not singling out any one group of people. It's all of these Christians. What was their attitude? They had, their, their, their hearts had been so changed. They've been so changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That they wanted to give. They were excited to give. Whether they had abundance or whether they were in need, they wanted to give. They took joy in the opportunity to give. This is the attitude of the people here that Paul is working with. He says, hey, there is a great desire to give. It pleased them to give. This was voluntary, but it wasn't, you know, I didn't have to suggest it. They wanted to do it. They were excited, and that excitement began to spill over from one church to the next as people were taking advantage of the opportunity and they were looking for opportunity to become involved in giving. And so when I say that first of all, giving is a joy is a joyous response to the gospel, that's what I mean that when we come to know who Jesus Christ is and what He has done for us, it so changes our heart, so changes the way that we look at things that we want to give, that we have a great desire to give, that we take pleasure in giving, and so we give. So notice there's no arm twisting involved. There's no threats. There's no... uh, You know, no cajoling them here to get them to give. They wanted to give. That was the attitude they were excited about. it. It pleased them, Paul says, to give. But back in Romans 15, the second aspect of giving almost appears to contradict the first. The second aspect of giving that Paul points out almost appears to contradict the first. I said that giving is a joyous response. It's a voluntary action in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then, the very next thing I said, that giving is a recognition of our spiritual debt. This is what Paul says back in Romans 15 and verse 27. He says, it pleased them, indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been, have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Now there's a couple words in there that, that uh, we may not always like to hear. This is where this gets a little controversial, okay? I mean, nobody usually objects when the pastor gets up and says that giving is a natural response of Christians who've trusted in Jesus Christ, who received the Holy Spirit, who indwells them, and now they want to give. Nobody objects to that, right? Nobody, oh yeah, sure, yeah, giving is what Christians want to do. Yes, it's voluntary. I like that. That's good. Keep it voluntary. Nobody objects to that. But when the pastor starts talking about giving as an obligation, then we start to go, wait a second, hold on a minute. I mean, you know, and I think we can be pretty cynical, Right? Because we know, we all know, of too many church leaders who've taken advantage of their position and have misused the biblical teaching on giving for their own personal gain. So we know that there are people out there who will take advantage of churches so that they can get wealthy. And as a result, we become cynical. Right? And this is how it starts. Pastor starts talking about obligations to give pretty soon, now we're all drinking Kool-Aid and we're all going to visit the spaceship together. None of that. we got to be able to set that aside for a minute, though. Because we have to look and understand what exactly is Paul getting at here in this verse. I think this is a very important point. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you. I read a story about a mother who wanted to teach her daughter a moral lesson. So she gave her a, a, a quarter and a dollar for church. And she said to her, put whatever one you want in the collection plate and keep the other one for yourself. So when they were coming out of the church, the mother asked her daughter about which amount she had given. Well, the little girl said, I was going to give the dollar. But just before the collection, the man in the pulpit said we should all be cheerful givers. I knew I'd be a lot more cheerful if I gave the quarter. So I did. (laughs) I think this little story actually illustrates the point pretty well. When Paul spoke about spiritual debt, the fact that the Gentile Christians here in these other cities of Greece and Asia, when he's talking about them owing an obligation to the Jewish Christians, he was really focusing in on their value system. It's really what this is about. See, many of us, the temptation is for us to see this world's goods Right? Money and material possessions as being the most important thing. We are tempted to value material things more than we value spiritual things. And then anybody who suggests that we should switch that up, and we should value spiritual things more than we value material things, anybody who suggests that, we have a tendency to see them as maybe a con artist, a salesman. Someone who's just trying to get at our money. Okay? And so we become defensive toward that. We don't want to receive that. We become skeptical about that. And we base our decisions about giving on what brings us the most happiness. At least as we see it. Paul, in this verse, I think is is really, he's really teaching the exact opposite of that. Paul says to the Romans, of these other Christians. He says, listen, they're Gentiles, but they have partaken, they have received of the spiritual generosity of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And since they have received those spiritual things, they ought to be pleased to give material things. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, in verse five, because I want to point this out, there's a really important aspect of this that Paul addresses there that I want to emphasize. Second Corinthians chapter nine and verse five. Paul says, "Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift before him, which you had previously promised." that it may be ready as a a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. Now we look at this verse, and we, we, we might be tempted to look at this verse and say, well, Paul says that their giving is supposed to be a matter of generosity, not grudging obligation. Therefore, this might even contradict what Paul says in Romans 15. Paul said there, no, you Gentiles have an obligation to give. Now he says, giving should be voluntary, not based on obligation. Well, which one is right? Well, we have to understand what this verse is really saying. Paul is dealing here with the issue of the love of money. He says in this verse, verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 9, that the people had already promised to give. Now he wants to see them exercise their generosity in their giving rather than a grudging obligation. But that's the key there, that phrase, grudging obligation. What does he mean by that? That phrase can literally mean covetousness. See, the contrast here is not between giving voluntarily versus giving as an obligation. The contrast is between giving generously and responding with covetousness which is going to be tight-fisted. That's the contrast here. The contrast is about what do we love. It's about the love of money. Are we so in love with money that we have to keep hold of it at all costs? Paul says, listen, when you give, you should give generously, not grudgingly, because you're so in love with that money, you can't bear to let it go he's not talking about here that, that, that you, well sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself I want to jump down Paul is not saying that generosity is in any way opposed to the idea of obligation I think sometimes we think that it is that if we recognize an obligation that somehow that's not being generous That is not what Paul is teaching, and I think, in fact, that's the the wrong idea. If we have that idea, that's not what the scriptures are teaching. Understanding that we have an obligation doesn't mean that our giving is not generous and joyous and voluntary. The two things are really not opposed to one another, even though they might seem to be on the surface. Paul was telling them, they ought to give generously because they're not in love with money. They ought to give generously because they recognize that the spiritual gift that they had received was far more valuable than any of the material goods they could possibly give. That whatever they could give in in uh, material wealth was nowhere near as valuable as what they had already received in spiritual blessings. Everett Harrison put it this way. I think this is a great way to say it. He said, had it not been for the generosity of the Jerusalem church in sharing their spiritual blessings, which is the gospel, as it was proclaimed by the people from Jerusalem and Judea, the Gentiles would still be in pagan darkness. Think about that for a second if the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem had just kept it to themselves, where would these people be? Where would the people who were Christians in Corinth, and Philippi, and Thessalonica, and all these places that Paul had been, where would these people be if the Jews in Jerusalem had said, you know what, this is for us and nobody else. We're not going to share it. Those Gentiles would still be lost. In pagan darkness. With no hope. In fact. You and I. Would still be lost. In pagan darkness. And no hope. If those Christians in Jerusalem. Hadn't left Jerusalem with the gospel. And preached it to others. We would be lost. That's the truth. And so. Harrison says this. It was not such a great thing that they should reciprocate by sharing their material blessings. These were people who if it weren't for those Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, these people would still be lost in their sin, worshipping false gods, involved in all sorts of immorality and idolatry and wickedness that would enslave them and bind them and destroy them. And all they were doing was recognizing, you know what? We owe them. I mean, they have given us so much. When they shared with us who Jesus Christ was. When they told us about Jesus and His life and His death and His resurrection. That gift is of infinite value. And so whatever we can possibly give is not enough. That was the attitude they had. That's what Paul emphasizes here. Now, I know I said we were going to consider three points in support of the premise uh, that giving is an indication of our spiritual condition, but we don't have time uh, to deal with my third point at all. We'll get to that next week, I promise. But what does this mean for us? What's the lesson that we should take from Paul's teaching about giving? Well, I think it's this. Not only is it possible for us to give with joyous generosity in light of the spiritual debt we owe. That is exactly what Paul says we should do. When we give, it ought to be joyfully, willingly, a voluntary choice that we make to give. But that doesn't mean that we can Then pat ourselves on the back and say, boy, we've really accomplished something and done something pretty spectacular. I gave my tithe to the church. Wow, I am a pretty good guy. I've really accomplished something because I gave something. No, I don't think we have a right to do that. I think the proper attitude is we ought to want to give joyfully, sacrificially, but then, when we have done that, we ought to say what Jesus says. Luke 17, verse 10. When you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. So the right attitude for us is to understand. I want to give sacrificially. I want to enjoy it. I want to do it voluntarily. No one's going to twist my arm and say, you've got to give a certain percentage we're going to take it. No one's going to do that. You need to want to give. We ought to as Christians want to give and desire to give, but when we're done giving and we've given everything we can possibly give, then we ought to say, it wasn't enough. All I did was give what was my duty to give. I haven't Exhausted that obligation. If Jesus Christ has truly saved us, then we ought to be learning to have a brand new perspective on the things of this world. So we can gladly and freely give those things which are of lesser value in order to repay a gift of infinitely greater value. the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, that is of infinite worth. And all of the treasures of this world and all of the things that we could possibly hold in our hands for a brief period of time in this life are nothing compared to the eternal blessings of knowing Jesus Christ. If someone has ministered that to us and someone has given that truth to us, we ought to respond. We ought to respond by giving generously back to the Lord, ministering to those who have ministered to us. Not thinking that we're special because we've given. Remembering that just like those Gentiles, if someone had not shared their spiritual riches with us, we would still be lost in pagan darkness. And so what do we do then? As I close this morning, we praise God. We praise God for sending Jesus Christ to die for our sins and secure our eternal life by rising again. We praise God for sending someone to minister the gospel to us so that we can hear and know about what Jesus Christ has done for us. And then we praise God for changing our hearts so that we love spiritual things more than we cling to. To this world's fleeting riches. Let's close with a word of prayer.